Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent Fourth Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Episode 30, Hater, Heresiarch, and Heterousian. Who is the fourth Cappadocian? Hello, dear listener. Today we look into the seedy underbelly of Nicene history. We've spent the last four months analyzing the lives and works of the so-called Cappadocian fathers in great detail. And we have, in so doing, played into the common narrative among historians that Basil and the two Gregories are the centerpieces of Cappadocian theology, that from this land on the edge of Asia Minor came the true final word on this Trinity thing that would at long last end a crisis of over 50 years. Now, we've already seen that story crack and fade a little bit. For starters, there isn't one theology that all the Cappadocians share. Gregory of Nazianzus is much more emphatic about the divinity of the Holy Spirit than Basil will ever be. Moreover, the Cappadocians don't ground the unity of the Trinity in the exact same way. They often waffle, even in their own writings, about whether the source of the Godhead's unity is the divine essence itself, or the Father as generator of Son and Spirit. But there is another, and even deeper reason, why we should be careful when talking about the Cappadocian Fathers. For if we look closely, we shall see that in this story there are not three Cappadocians, but four. From Cappadocia's mountainous terrain sprung forth not just the three plucky defenders of Nicene Orthodoxy. It also nurtured their greatest enemy, the man all three would try to refute, the teacher that all Logos-fearing citizens of the time quivered to hear speak. That's right. The fourth Cappadocian is Eunomius of Sisyphus. That's right, Eunomius of Sisicum, that speaker of the radical Homoians, the so-called Heterousian, appears to have hailed from Cappadocia. It wouldn't be right to move the story forward without seeing what this fourth son of the province had to say for himself, and how he lived. But why wouldn't it be right? After all, most of the histories of this period pass over Eunomius in silence, leaving him to rot in the company of all poorly remembered heretics. Why not do the same? Well, a couple of reasons. First of all, I don't think it's possible to fully understand the Cappadocians without understanding the theology that freaked them out so much. Everybody does theology in a particular time and place, and understanding what Eunomius said will help us understand why the Cappadocians emphasized what they chose to emphasize. Second, I just think that doing good history requires us to let each party speak for themselves as much as possible. So far, we have only heard Eunomius' words from the mouths of the other Cappadocians, who are only quoting him to tell you how all of his words are hot garbage. Justice requires, I think, that we let Eunomius speak for himself. Third, I have told you many times that theology and politics are inseparable. Eunomius affords us an opportunity to see this intersection by asking a really important question. How come everybody hated this guy? Because it wasn't just the pro-Nicenes. 
Most of the Nicene skeptical crowd balked at Eunomius's radical vision. Even today, when you can find a fair amount of sympathy for Arius among self-styled progressives or radicals, virtually no one will show Eunomius any sympathy. What was it about his vision that made him so deeply unpopular, even as he wielded great power and influence over those devoted to him? In short, we need this episode because we need to ask a question all too often unasked. Just who is this beguiling bagatelle of bloviating blasphemies, this oft-quoted quester of divinity's quiddity, this eviscerated ecclesiarch of eternally enervated eminence? Just who is Eunomius of Sisychum? Of course, we have met Eunomius before as a disciple of Aetius in the radical heterousian school. But to treat him only as the disciple of another does disservice to his own authority and to his role as an independent foil for the Cappadocians. But to understand how Eunomius came to be so important in his own right, we have to go back to the beginning. Now, Eunomius was born in a small Cappadocian city called Altaceris on the border of Cappadocia and Galatia. His family appears to have been of reasonable means. They did work that was complex and well-paying enough for them to require secretaries, which almost certainly means that Eunomius was born an aristocrat, although probably of a lower rank than Basil or Gregory. There's a lot we don't know about Eunomius's origins, but we do know that he had a very pronounced lisp as an adult. It's not clear whether this was a speech impediment or a side effect of his attempts to rid himself of his Cappadocian accent. Remember that Cappadocia was looked down upon in the Roman hierarchy. People joked that a Cappadocian could speak well when a tortoise could fly. Eunomius might very well have tried to rid himself of his ancestral accent with limited success, resulting in the lisp. Eunomius's family was wealthy enough to send him away to school to learn a trade, but he wouldn't start out pursuing rhetoric. Instead, he began by learning the principles of writing shorthand, a very lucrative skill that could easily lead to a career in the church, the academy, or the courts. But after completing this course of study, Eunomius wanted more, and so he sought out a rhetorical education for himself, first in the imperial capital of Constantinople. As he progressed, he left the capital for Alexandria, the major center of learning in the East. It was in the course of this education that he came across his teacher, Aetius. Aetius was an interesting guy. Almost certainly raised as a pagan, Aetius came to faith as a young man and began to gain renown as a teacher. His radical teachings on the son's unlikeness to the father began to earn him notoriety and scorn in equal measure across the empire. Now, controversial teachers tend to make enemies even with the best of personalities. But Aetius did not have the best of personalities. In fact, he was almost as famous for his theology as he was for being, well, a massive jerk. He managed to get kicked out of his residence at least four times over the course of his life. In one particularly embarrassing incident, he was kicked out of Antioch despite having the personal favor of the bishop because he preached a sermon so incendiary that it started a giant riot in the city. Whoops. Aetius also got nominated to be a bishop, but turned it down because the bishops who would have sponsored him were in communion with the Homoousians. Not that they were Homoousians themselves, but they talked to the Homoousians. That was bad enough. Aetius's party, in other words, was just as capable of doctrinal gatekeeping as the Nicenes. And yet, despite all his warts, 
Aeneas managed to project an odd sort of personal charisma that draws a certain kind of person to him. It certainly drew Eunomius, who was willing to risk death decades later just for the sake of Aeneas's memory. Nor was Eunomius the only one to feel such devotion. It's hard to know exactly where his charisma came from, but there is no doubting that Aeneas had it. Now, Eunomius would have experienced quite the culture shock coming to Alexandria. He had spent most of his life as a student in Antioch and Constantinople, two cities where anti-Nicene Christians tended to have the run of the show. But now he was in Alexandria in the 340s. This was Athanasius' home turf. Or it would have been if Athanasius hadn't been getting exiled all the time, so his putative home turf. But even if Athanasius was at MIA, he still had the support of the vast majority of the Christian population. As a student of Aetius, Eunomius was most definitely in the minority. We don't really know what Eunomius made of his first encounter with homoousian theology. The scholar Richard Vagioni suggests that Eunomius and Aetius took a rather different view of theology's task than their opponents did. For most Western anti-Nicenes, Vagioni suggests, Theology was a matter of fidelity to tradition as handed down by bishops. It was the bishop's job to transmit orthodox teaching, and you could double-check your own orthodoxy by comparing it to the teaching of a trusted bishop. But Aetius and Eunomius saw the ultimate check on orthodoxy as the Bible, which was in turn interpreted by expert teachers who could cross-check the validity of each other's interpretations. In short, there was a division between those old 4th century pillars of authority, bishops and charismatic teachers. But for whatever this is worth, I'm a little skeptical we can draw that clear of a distinction. It seems to me like Vagioni is treating the Western anti-Nicenes like 4th century Catholics, and Aetius and Eunomius are like 4th century Protestants. That's probably a little bit too simple of a line to draw. Nevertheless, I do think there is something to the idea that Aetius and Eunomius saw their own powers of scholarship as a check on the possible corruption of bishops. After all, you will find no more vociferous defenders of the rights of charismatic teachers than those teachers themselves. And both Aetius and Eunomius fit that bill. Now, Aetius taught Eunomius a method of theological reasoning that his opponents would derisively refer to as logic chopping. The Greek term was technologos, which sounds super-duper cool. That term could be translated in any number of ways, story-crafter, artisan of rationality, or, as the scholarship says today, logic-chopper. I'm going to stick with logic-chopper because that is what the literature uses, and also because it sounds like some kind of philosophical spin-off of chopped. The Road to Nicaea, now brought to you by philosophical spin-offs of popular shows. Four philosophers. Their challenge? Create a coherent doctrine of God using the three arguments in their basket. Idealism and realism? What am I, Immanuel Kant? Before time. Brutal realism? What does that have to do with anything? Runs out. I, I couldn't finish the syllogism. I only have a major premise to present. Four philosophers. But only one can be crowned the expert on God. They can make any theology they want, but they have to use what's in Descartes. On this year's season of Logic Chopped, Nicene Edition. Now, you may be asking, just what is Eunomius' logic chopping, and why does everybody else hate it so much? 
There are two answers to that question, one theological and one societal. The theological answer is this. Eunomius, like everybody else in the controversy, was thoroughly astounded and eternally irritated that he couldn't get his opponents to agree with him on how certain biblical passages should be interpreted. Eunomius seems generally to have thought that the way to solve these interpretive riddles was by presenting simple thought exercises to rule out illogical interpretations. We've already seen one example of this mode of thinking. Do the concepts we apply to God name only our ideas about God, or do they describe God as he is in reality? Well, it should be that they describe God as he is in reality. So if unbegotten describes God as he is in reality, can the Son be God? Well, no, because the Son is begotten. Therefore, any scriptural passage that can be interpreted to mean the Son is unbegotten, like, say, John chapter 1, needs to be reinterpreted so as to conform to this logical conclusion. Now, theologically, this was a hot take. The Cappadocians hated it because they thought it elevated human reason above divine revelation and generally insulted the authority of the scriptures. But it wasn't just the Homoousians who hated this method. Most of the Homoian crowd, whether Homoousian or not, was deeply uncomfortable with the idea that human reason could sit in judgment over biblical interpretation. After all, St. Paul famously said that God had made foolish the wisdom of the world in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 19. So how could they now use worldly reason to tell them what God's word said? Now, if you're sympathetic to Eunomius, you might here be thinking, well, hold on now, we all use reason to interpret the scriptures. I mean, even being able to read a book is an act of reason. So why is everybody getting worked up about the way Eunomius does things? They're doing the same thing. They have to be. Now, it is, of course, true that everybody has to use their reason to interpret. Interpretation is an act of a rational mind. But there is a difference between applying your reason to close literary analysis and importing a priori conclusions and demanding the text conform to them. Think of the ways that Athanasius and the Cappadocians explicated Proverbs chapter 8, 22, when it stated that wisdom was the first thing created by God. They said, well, if we read the Bible carefully, we see that there are other places where it describes something as created that wasn't really created. So it's possible that here the word has the force of something like established rather than created. Now that's a literary analysis that is ultimately grounded in evidence from the Bible. If there hadn't been other passages that used the word created in that sense, then that argument would have been a bust. Eunomius, on the other hand, starts with an argument that isn't grounded in the Bible at all. In fact, if the Bible didn't exist and God had never spoken to us, then Eunomius' argument could have sailed on without a problem in the world. And Eunomius thought those sorts of thought experiments should determine how we interpret the scriptures. You see the difference? One is looking across the whole Bible to interpret it as a whole. Another is importing conclusions that have nothing to do with the Bible to biblical interpretation. And that was simply too far for most people in the church. The idea that we should reason about God without the Bible, and then later apply those results to the Bible, was contrary to the general thrust of most Christian piety. So that was the theological reason. But there was also a social controversy around this method. For Eunomius looked to his opponents an awful lot like one of the most hated and most needed professions in the ancient world, the sophists. Sophists, or mere rhetoricians, as they were often called, were people trained in the arts of logic and argument who sold out their skills to the highest bidder. 
A sophist didn't argue to reach the truth. A sophist argued to reach the conclusions that their customer had paid them to reach. Sophists had a terrible reputation for being cynical, money-grubbing types who would make murder sound virtuous if there was a quick buck to be made in it. In fact, the true philosophers, people like Socrates and Plato, were depicted as fighting against the sophists and their cynical illusions. Eunomius's abstract logical exercises sounded to many of his opponents exactly like the kind of tricks a sophist would use. Now, if you were thinking that the difference between a sophist and a philosopher was in the eye of the beholder, or, I guess, the ear of the listener, then congratulations! You're right on! Exactly the same accusation will be thrown at the pro-Nicenes by their enemies, who think that they're the ones supporting false arguments. I don't think it's fair to complain that anybody was a sophist just because you think they were wrong. To be a sophist, you have to be cynical enough to think your own argument doesn't work, and to make it anyway. Neither Eunomius nor the pro-Nicenes fit that criterion. Is it possible that Eunomius's methods bear a strong resemblance to the sophists? Yes, it is. But that alone does not a sophist make. But history is written by the victors, and since Eunomius was not in the winning party, he has gone down in history with the enemies of Jesus. And of Socrates. There is another possibility for why this charge of sophistry might have carried extra weight, which is that Atheus and Eunomius were both present in the court of the Bishop of Antioch for quite some time. Their opponents will accuse them of being dilettantes, less interested in religious service than in attending the best parties with the choicest food. That's the sort of thing a sophist would do, interested as he is, in who can pay the most for his services rather than the truth. It's also the sort of thing that you would say in the mid-fourth century, when monastic life has become very well known and much admired. The idea that Eunomius and Aetius weren't good ascetics would have been enough to disqualify their theologies in the eyes of many, many readers. Now, you should trust these criticisms about as far as you can throw them. We have no contemporary records from Eunomius as to his position on asceticism, and the only people making such accusations are his harshest critics. It is interesting, however, that Eunomius himself had nothing to say about the ascetical movements that were sweeping the empire in his day. Contrast this with Athanasius, whose bestseller was a biography of St. Antony the Great, the popularizer of Egyptian monasticism. Or contrast it with the other three Cappadocians, who all had significant and formative exposure to the monastic life. The most we find is that Eunomius' disciples will describe a healthy respect for moderate, limited ascetical practices done in connection with a local church community, rather than, say, out in the desert. The emphasis was very much on the proper limits, and not on the kind of extreme self-denial that many monks exhibited. All that is enough to make me think that Eunomius was probably a little less jived about the monastic movement than his contemporaries, but not so much less as to be opposed overall. However, Eunomius and Aetius didn't have too much time to wax philosophical about the comparative merits of various approaches to asceticism. They were about to have a much bigger problem. Their imperial patron was about to die. You will remember that Eunomius and Aetius were living in Antioch, and they were living there around about the early 350s. You may also remember that this was the time period when Gallus was the Caesar in Antioch. Some sources treat Gallus as the patron of Eunomius. That may be stretching it a bit, but we do know that Gallus tolerated Eunomius and his heteroousian theology. Of course, that may have been because he was too busy being a literal evil emperor 
and ordering the deaths of the entire Antiochene Senate whilst cackling maniacally and theatrically swiveling in his chair whilst petting a white cat to care about what the church was up to. But, of course, Gallus didn't last long. Constantius showed up and had him executed, and then cleaned house pretty thoroughly, getting rid of all his terrible advisors. Aetius and Eunomius survived the purge and actually did pretty well. Aetius got a job in the court of one of the bishops that kept replacing Athanasius during his exiles. Eunomius came along with his teacher for the ride to Alexandria. Bigger storms were on the horizon, however. For Eunomius and Aetius had multiple political enemies to confront. Not only were they under pressure from the Homoousian crowd, but the Homoousian crowd didn't like them much either. Which makes sense. I mean, beside all of the disagreements about method I just mentioned, if you go around saying that the Son and Father are unlike in substance, then whether other people think that they are the same in substance or just alike in substance, they're not much going to like you. When we covered the reign of Constantius and the many, many councils that got called during it, we mostly talked about how bad they were for the pro-Nicene side, and they were. But they were also not great for Eunomius and Aetius, because their theologies also kept getting condemned as being simply too far beyond the pale, even for those skeptical of Athanasius. Aetius, in particular, bore the brunt of these political reprisals, and in so doing, sowed the seeds for his student to finally escape his shadow. To make a very long story short, a very important bishop named Eudoxius was in a fight with Basil of Ancyra. You may remember Basil of Ancyra as the leading light of the Homoiousian school. Now, both bishops brought their charges to Emperor Constantius in Constantinople. Both of them did a really bad job. Basil was just told to shut up. Then, when Eudoxius brought a list of letters people had written in support of him, everybody found out that one of those letters supported a super-heretical position. To which Eudoxius replied, Uh, well, gee, Emperor, or, uh, Imps for short, can I call you Imps? Uh, no, no, oh, uh, well, uh, well, okay, Mr. Emperor Constantius, sir. You see, the thing is, I, uh, I didn't write this letter at all. Aetius wrote it for me. So Constantius, in no mood for these games, called Aetius in to explain himself. Aetius very confidently said that he had indeed written the letter, but Constantius had actually misunderstood him, and Aetius actually taught the opposite position. I mean, it's really subtle. It relies on some obscure logic you've probably never heard of, Emperor. If you just could give me the floor for a few hours, I could explain it to you. But Constantius was not in the mood for being talked down to by overconfident teachers. He expelled Aetius from Constantinople, who was never to return. As you might imagine, when your teacher just got expelled by the emperor personally for blasphemy, that leaves you with a bit of explaining to do. It was in that context that Eunomius wrote his infamous apology. It wasn't intended as a broadside against Homoousians. It wasn't a statement of doctrine he produced because he was bored. It was his attempt to convince a very irritated Homoian majority that he was orthodox and shouldn't be kicked out. And for that purpose, at least, it did its job. Eudoxius, now in need of new allies since he had thrown his old one under the bus, had Eunomius made bishop of Sisicum, a city just a hop across the pond from Constantinople. This kept Eunomius close to power, but away from all of the very angry yelling in the capital's courts. It did not mean he had an easy job, though. Eunomius was replacing a much-beloved Homoousian bishop who was not above making life difficult for his successor. 
But Eunomius' biggest enemy was not this shadowy ex-bishop whispering conspiracies into his diocese from the sidelines. No, Eunomius' biggest enemy was his own big, fat mouth. He got to his church and on Epiphany preached a sermon to a very irritated congregation, still not happy that they had their bishop replaced, in which Eunomius basically told them his views about everything, including the belief that Mary had not stayed a virgin after Jesus' birth. Now to you, the well-educated modern public, that may seem like a fairly lukewarm take even if you disagree. But to the ancient world, the idea that the Blessed Virgin Mary had not stayed a virgin forever, but had <gasps> had other children, and done the things that create other children, was so scandalous that it resulted in a formal complaint made to the emperor. The road to Nicaea, now apparently brought to you by sex negativity. Now, Eunomius managed to hold on to his seat, although he found it convenient to leave the city for a while. During this time, he was highly involved in efforts to promote his theology throughout the church. Once Constantius went to his grave and the pagan emperor Julian was on the throne, Eunomius and his allies worked to set up parallel bishops in cities where the regnant bishop was not appropriately heteroousian in outlook. Interestingly enough, Eunomius's allies all had one thing in common. They were renowned as wonder workers. Aetius had been known for doing miracles, and his disciples and allies were renowned for showy displays of power. This is really different from the pro-Nicenes. Nicenes will celebrate Basil the Great's humility, for example. I mean, he went down to dress the wounds of the poor himself at the hospice he built. That's a pretty humble thing to do. But they never claimed that Basil could heal the poor with a touch. Eunomius's allies did claim that. They leaned heavily upon their charismatic credentials for their authority. And oddly enough, this made them something of an elite movement. That might surprise you. I mean, wouldn't the crowds be really interested in seeing a guy who could literally work miracles? Well, perhaps they would have if Eunomius's allies had been interested in a mass movement. But they largely saw themselves as charismatic and authoritative teachers. Their job was to teach people to understand God largely through the lens of super-technical, super-dense arguments. And apparently their speeches were more boring than their miracles were interesting. Note that all this is happening at the exact same time Athanasius is trying to build alliances even with those who won't affirm the father and son are homoousius. Athanasius tells us that we need to get away from wrangling over the meaning of words and affirm those who mean the same thing even when their language is different. At the same time, Eunomius and his allies are saying that the word wrangling is the important part, and that we need to be doing more of it. You can see which strategy panned out better in the long term. And Eunomius had bigger problems than the common folks' lack of interest in graduate-level theological word wrangling. For Julian would not be on the throne for long. During his short reign, however, he would say that all the bishops who had been kicked out of their sees should return, with the notable exception of poor Athanasius. One of those returning bishops was Eunomius's obnoxious predecessor. But before Julian could sort out which bishop was the real bishop of Sisicum, he would die, to be replaced by Jovian, who would also die, who would be replaced by Valentinian, who would appoint Valens to be the Augustus in the East. Valens would then decree that everybody Constantius had banished and Julian had unbanished was now banished all over again. Which meant Eunomius was once again the sole unchallenged bishop of Sisicum. Yay! But then there was civil unrest related to a rebellion that I'm not going to get into right now, and Eunomius had to leave the city all over again. 
Despite the fact that he had fled from the rebelling forces, he was suspected of being in league with them, and he had tried to talk to the leader of the rebellion. He had also, through his extraordinary lack of people skills, managed to get most of his clergy friends to call for his exile. Which is exactly what happened. After a whole bunch of political trouble, which basically involved Eunomius' predecessor warming his way back into Sisicum again, and getting the whole diocese on his side again, Eunomius was exiled to Naxos, a fairly large island in the Aegean Sea. You are probably getting the impression by now that Eunomius was not a particularly good bishop. And you would be right. He appears to have done pretty much zero administrative or pastoral work, and he had a knack for irritating just about everybody that he really shouldn't have irritated. While he undoubtedly had some influence, it's hard not to read his story and think of him as a man pushed about by the tides of ecclesiastical currents that he couldn't really control, or even manage. In that way, perhaps his exile was a blessing, because it got him away from all that stuff he wasn't very good at, and allowed him to concentrate on what he was good at. Telling other people why they were wrong. Remember that apology that Eunomius wrote all the way back when he was first being made a bishop? Well, now Eunomius finally had time to go back and read what people had written about it. In particular, he stumbled across the work of one Basil of Caesarea and his Against Eunomius. And that made Eunomius mad. Really mad. Just who was this upstart homoousian who was so clearly wrong about everything? Now that he finally had some time on his hands, Eunomius could teach this kid a lesson. So it was that Eunomius picked up his lucky quill, popped his knuckles, and began to compose his reply to Basil, the infamed apology for the apology. Yeah, Eunomius wasn't great at titles, but he was good at expressing his ideas. This book is probably the single clearest exposition we have of the heterousian position, replete with Eunomius' account of language and metaphysics that made his vision possible. To him, perhaps, inevitable. The time has finally come to let the heretic speak for himself. So join us next time, friends, as we plumb the depths of heterousian heresy, Eunomius's apology for the apology, the daunting and unexpected roadblock that we must circumnavigate on this road to Nicaea. This is an Earth and Alter Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com.